Okay, so we're wrapping up tonight our material on uh, officers. One little section here left for pastors, and that's the selection and ordination of pastors. Don't have a whole lot to say here, except for just a few words about uh, the purpose and function of uh, ordination councils. The ordination proper of pastors is not actually accomplished by an ordination council. I think that's a common misunderstanding. Uh, the ordination council is simply an advisory council uh, that is that is there to assist a church to know whether that church ought to ordain uh, the pastor. So, uh, of course, uh, p- part of the reason the confusion is there is because a number of the other uh, government types, church government types, actually do have groups of elders and, and such that actually do ordain and appoint uh, pastors for other churches. Well, that's not the case in a Baptist church, of course. But in a Baptist church, a uh, church autonomously selects its officers, including its pastors, by a vote of the members. So elders don't function as an appointing committee. Now, they can be part of certainly of some sort of a of a uh, you know pulpit you know pulpit search committee and all that. Uh, but the idea of the elders actually appointing uh, their replacements is something that is foreign to Baptist polity. In so selecting the elders, the church then is the de facto ordaining body. They're the ones who actually ordain. Uh, the, the pastors uh, to and uh, and call them to preside over the life of the church. Uh, in historical Baptist light, ordination and installation were typically understood to be coextensive. Uh, in the modern church, elders are often installed independently of and even irrespective of their ordination, which is kind of odd. Um, I, I think we've we've become a little bit lax, loose with our polity, and, and I'm not going after when I say our, I think in Baptist life generally is what I'm saying here. Um, the the logical ordering would be uh, to have a, a, a candidate examined by an examining body and uh, and a recommendation made, and then the call to the pastor, it would take place immediately afterwards. But oftentimes what happens is a pastor will call someone to the pastorate, and then maybe six months, a year later, uh, they'll actually uh, assemble a group of, of, of folks, a, an ordination council, to examine the person that they've already installed, which is actually quite backwards. Uh, you, you really shouldn't, because now but only rarely have I been in ordination councils uh, where there has been any hesitation or doubt that that person was going to be uh, recommended for ordination. But there's there's a lot of presumption here, I think, sometimes that goes on within the life of the church. And so, you know, I, I don't anticipate uh, your your pastor walking away anytime soon. But if but if he should have, but if you should be in a, in a position, a situation where you need to appoint a new pastor, I'd recommend that you actually do the uh, the the examination, the ordination council, the advisory council before you call the pastor, rather than than afterward, uh, because you could end up in a sort of an awkward situation if you if you do it uh, 
out of, out of order there. So today, ordination occurs when the church formally recognizes that an individual has the God-given gifts and skills necessary to the execution of the pastoral office. This recognition is usually made on the advisement of a group of elders from multiple churches, which is an ordination council. And the basis of this is, uh, is, is Timothy's uh, statement here that, uh, uh his, uh, in, in second Timothy one, that, uh, he had been appointed through the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now that, that, term is probably a little bit an, an odd one here, but apparently there was a group of elders that came together and were influential in, uh, in, uh, in recommending Timothy uh, for his role uh, as, uh, as Paul's helper there on his, in his missionary journeys. Okay. So, so today that's typically how it happened. An ordination council approves or uh, contrarily disapproves of a candidate, but remember this is only a recommendation. Um, it doesn't actually recognize, it doesn't, uh, doesn't make a person a pastor. Uh, the function of, of appointing a pastor belongs to the church alone. Typically, uh, in modern life with, and in keeping with the biblical pattern, ordination typically includes a literal laying on of hands, and probably many of you have seen ordinations uh, or installations of pastors to uh, to churches. And oftentimes what happens is those, uh, the, the, uh, the recommending body, the ordination council, is usually invited back uh, the following Sunday uh, when the, in, the installation proper takes place. And they're often invited then uh, at, at a sort of a, a solemn formal prayer uh, to come forward and lay their hands on the candidate, the new pastor, in order to symbolically then confer upon that individual here uh, their their approval of him as an elder for the church. Now, it's symbolic only. It's not as though there's some sort of magical communication that takes place. Uh, nonetheless, this seems to be a pattern that is in the New Testament, and we tended to try to perpetuate that over the years. So Acts 13, 1 to 3, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now this is not technically an elder uh, ordination here, but actually missionaries, but uh, the, the patterns here. So after they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. <clears throat> Uh, first Peter, uh, first Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands upon anyone hastily. And so it's, it's, it had become so common to uh, appoint pastors by the laying on of hands that it actually uh, becomes code for installing a pastor. Laying, laying some, laying hands on someone is to, uh, to appoint them to pastoral ministry. Second Timothy 1.6, uh, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh, Timothy, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So apparently Paul himself was involved in uh, Timothy's ordination. Um, and if your church ends up in a position where they, uh, you know, need some help on this, uh, Dr. McCune's got a very handy uh, little uh, 
outline agenda for uh, for an ordination uh, council. Uh, well worth uh, perusing if you ever in if, if you're ever in that situation. <coughs> okay. Any questions there on the uh, selection and ordination of pastors? A uh, quick question: If let's say our pastor is an adult, uh, has is or, ordained from our church, yeah. he takes a pastor elsewhere. Is there another ordination typically? Typically, no. Uh, although there, there's no no reason why there couldn't be. It, it's see in 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 most denominations, once you are ordained by the denomination. You are ordained forever in, for any church that is in that denomination. Of course, we don't, we, we don't have a denomination. We're an in, a group of independent churches. So in theory, uh, just because one church approves of you does not mean at all that the next church will. Uh, so in theory, you could have an ordination council for someone who's already technically been ordained. Cause there, there's, I mean, it's, it's not as though there's some sort of a denominational rule. For us that says, okay, once, once you're ordained, you're ordained forever. Now, oftentimes those ordinations are honored. And so the idea of us, of a, a separate ordination council is, is fairly unusual. Uh, but there's, there's nothing that prevents that from happening again. Yeah. Cause you, between Baptist churches, you could have a, a lot of difference. You could, you could. Yeah. There, there, it's not as though there's some sort of biblical rule here. Um, it's not, it's not like baptism. Like once you're baptized, you don't have to be re- baptized again if you go to another church. And there's, there's no rule like that for, uh, for ordination. Now, again, there is sort of a gentleman's agreement that once one, one has gone through the grueling process of an ordination council, they're not going to make him do it again. But in theory, they could. Okay, well, let's move to the second office then of the uh, of the New Testament Church, and that is deacons. Deacons. We'll start here as we did with the pastor with the qualifications of deacons, and I've got uh, two key passages here. Uh, one is Acts six three and five, um, generally thought to be the first selection of deacons. There are perhaps some reasons to look at this and say, well, it's not technically a the the same kind of situation that we have today but it's pretty close uh these the difference of course is that the apostles are running this church the apostles are running out of time to get everything done and so they oversee the appointment of these individuals they're never called deacons per se in this passage but it seems to set a pattern here uh for churches moving forward uh to uh, to supply these extra, this, this extra help, these individuals, uh, to assist in the life of the church. So choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So those are the qualifications there. And then our, our, our major, uh, section here comes from 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, right on the heels of the requirements for pastoral ministry. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. Then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons in the same way their wives 
are to be women, worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, and were trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So like the qualifications for bishops, uh, the uh, the qualifications for deacons focus on character issues primarily and differ very little uh, from that list. So uh, there's a lot of overlap here. I'm not going to repeat uh, the, uh, the, the, the items on the list that we've already discussed. I just re- really just want to go after the ones that are new. Uh, the ones that are a little bit different than the uh, the, the notes for the list of, of pastors. First, we've noted above, uh, there's no requirement for deacons to be adept at teaching. Uh, that's one thing that's sort of glaringly absent from this list. There's no requirement that deacons know how to teach. That doesn't mean, though, that they can be just ambivalent to Christian doctrine. It says they need to hold fast to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Uh, so it is incumbent upon deacons, even though you say, well, they're just servants of the church. Yeah, but the fact that they are required here uh, to be aware of and to hold deeply the truths of the scripture means they should be seasoned folk, uh, people who have been believers for a while, who understand the ins and outs of what the scriptures have to say. And uh, I think perhaps it's going to tell us a little bit of something about their function as well, but more on that in a moment. So it's not required that they know how to teach and preach, but they have to at least hold fast the truths of the Christian scriptures. Sincerity (coughs) is also something that's new on the list. Term here is actually a rare one, and so there's some question as to exactly what it means. It it actually means not double-worded. Um, so it's an extremely rare word. It could mean metaphorically being sincere. You know, they don't say one thing one place and another thing somewhere else. Okay, so that's possible. But there's a, there's another option here uh, that suggests that perhaps that we should take this this word literally as not double worded, and that is they don't repeat words. Okay, so there's some debate as to which one is true. Both of them make good sense in their context. One means they're sincere. One means that they're not gossips. Both of them seem to be very important for uh, the office of deacon. The suggestion, I've I've been inclined uh, to go with this second understanding, the the reticence to repeat words, not being gossips. So why would this be something that would be required of deacons, but it's not even on the list for pastors? Shouldn't, Shouldn't pastors be sincere shouldn't pastors not be gossips why is it why does it appear on this list and not on the pastor's list well there's a couple of options here some who accept a female deacon suggest that this is appears on the list because this is a a a sin which women arguably are more prone than men and i've made the word arguably there so i have a i have a i have a i'm able to sidestep uh, any criticism that comes my way here, uh, but uh, uh, and, and possibly that's the case. Probably more likely here is is it has to do with the function of the deacons. The deacons were often assigned to folks who are living in poverty, 
uh, who are older, unable to take care of themselves, and likely to find themselves perhaps in embarrassing situations where people are indisposed, and people who might be a peculiar objects of gossip. And so there seems to be a great concern here that deacons not repeat matters. Um, and so, uh, and others suggest that if they are acting advise, as advisors to uh, the pastor, he's something of a sounding board for him, uh, he, they need, that the pastor needs to know uh, that his deacons are not going to be blabbing all over the church uh, those 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 things said in confidence in those situations. So uh, perhaps some reasons why uh, it might appear that this 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 idea might appear on the list for deacons and not for pastors. In any case, it's something that's required of deacons that they be trustworthy. They're not they're, they have to be sincere and they're not inclined uh, to repeat matters. Another issue here is trustworthiness. Uh, which you'd say, well, that's, that's something that pastors should be too. They should be trustworthy. But again, it seems to me uh, that what we have here is there is a need for loyalty among the deacons of a church to their pastor. Um, doesn't mean that they can't, you know, can't uh, confront a pastor or, or be, you know, pushovers. At the same time, their need, the pastor needs to know that his deacons are going to be loyal to him. Um, and it, particularly when, when tough times come in the church, and they do at times. And so trustworthiness is something that is particularly important here, uh, Paul says, for deacons. Of course, one of the things that stands out on this list is this reference here to women uh, in, in, in second, uh, excuse me, first Timothy chapter three. And there's quite a bit of debate here as to what we're supposed to do uh, with this reference to women. Two options observe, uh, emerge. Um, I actually read from the NIV 1984, and so you can see the way it is worded there, uh, that it's the wives of the deacons. So their wives, uh, I believe, is how, how it was worded here. Yes. Um, um, so... Where is it? In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Uh, this fits perhaps um, more naturally with the identification of male deacons in verse 12 and with the pattern of male leadership in the life of the church, especially in Acts 6. But this view suffers from the absence of any qualification with this word women, okay? If the word is to be translated as wives, you would expect to see something like their wives. But that doesn't actually appear in the Greek. It actually just says women are to be, uh, you know, and then and go on to the into the requirements for women. So it doesn't actually say their women or their wives or the wives of the deacons. It actually just says women are to be this way. So uh, the 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 possibility exists here that. The reference here is to women deacons, okay? Phoebe is described in in, uh, Romans 16 as a diakonos as well, uh, giving some uh, credence to the possibility of female deacons. The term could also indicate that women may be deacons then, 
New American Standard has it this way. So does the, the newer NIV. This, this understanding explains why women are mentioned in the discussion of deacons and not of bishops. Women can't be pastors, uh, but they can be perhaps deacons. Um, and you would think that there would be some sort of qualifications for pastor's wives in verses one to eight, but there's nothing there. Okay. Only in this section on deacons. It also makes good sense for females to be active in the diaconate uh, that began as a ministry specifically to widow women, right? You know, that that's how it started, right? There were a number of true widows, impoverished, uh, probably unable to take care of themselves uh, in terms of feeding themselves. And so these deacons are appointed to help these older women. And it only makes sense uh, that they would rely pretty heavily on women to help them with this work. Okay, so uh, the idea of female deacons, uh, uh, you know, at least grows at least in terms of its of its possibility. My conclusion is rather bland here. Baptists have historically been divided on the issue and likely are going to remain so. The exegetical and theological arguments are fairly evenly weighted. In any case, I think what emerges here is that the church needs to recognize and employ women, irrespective of whether they have the office of deacon, to perform deacon-like functions within the life of the church. Uh, now, whether those are the wives of the existing deacons, whether they are independent deaconesses, uh, uh, can be dis- can be debated and probably will be for a long time. Uh, but certainly, uh, there is an there is an obvious takeaway from this uh, that uh, women can be and ought to be heavily involved in the life of the church, in serving uh, the church. Any questions here on that? I know that's sometimes a uh, a sensitive point of yeah. yeah. Just, it would seem it would seem that uh, that possibly uh, one argument against uh, women deacons would be it would be the thing of uh, the prohibition against a woman exercising authority over a man. How does that how does that idea fit in? To yeah, the- that's a, that's a good point. And 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 in fact. Part of, part of, part of that comes down to what the function of deacons is. Now, in modern independent Baptist life, deacons have tended over the years to have creepingly greater power. And so most deacon boards, uh, function as formal advisory groups, uh, you know, groups of trustees for the church. Um, and so, if in fact they are uh, assuming those kinds of responsibilities, your point would make sense. My my pushback is that I'm not sure that that's really what the Bible anticipates the primary functions of deacons to be, and so I, I think that that argument, which is uh, which I think makes good sense in the modern setting, may not have worked. May may not have been so as strong in a in a setting where deacons are actually functioning as deacons. 
I don't know if that helps. So basically, it's just the idea originally, anyway, was just basically people that that knew how to take take care of things. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> I'm going to give a fairly broad allowance to the church to to uh, to assign roles to deacons. Seems to me that with Acts as our guide, the goal is whatever the pastor needs relief in in order to give himself over to the ministry of the word and prayer can be handed over to the deacons. Um, now that, that may be, you know, maintenance around the church. It might be taking care of widows. <coughs> it might be functioning as a sounding board for the pastor. You know, I mean, th- those are, those, those are the kinds of things that a pastor might need. Uh, but it, the, the term itself simply means a servant, uh, not a, not a group of people who have intrinsic oversight assigned to them. Okay. So we've pretty much covered this uh, topic here then, the function of deacons. Function of deacon is inherent (coughs) in the term itself. Diakonos simply means servant. Those who relieve the weight of ecclesiastical oversight by assisting with the church's physical and social tasks, Acts 6, 1 to 6. Among such tasks might be included ministries of benevolence, maintenance of facilities, financial business, logistics of the church service. Some insist that this is the only function that can be assigned to deacons. I'm I'm a little bit more broad with that. Uh, the qualifications of Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 suggest that the deacons may be commissioned to carry out spiritual duties as well. They need to know well and hold fast the truths of the scripture. Well, if all they're doing is, you know, you know, you know, yeah, make, making sure that the, uh, the, the, the hinges on the front door aren't squeaking, you don't necessarily need to know your Bible thoroughly to be able to do that. Uh, it seems that the, that that requirement of deacons uh, means that it at least should be possible for a pastor to hand over some, at least some some minor spiritual responsibilities uh, to deacons. And I think you've got something like that in your church. You've got small groups that are headed up by deacons, and I think that's a legitimate function uh, to to assign to deacons. Uh, there is some reason that they have to have these meet these qualifications, and so it, it seems logical and reasonable that they might be engaged at least in, at some level in in, in spiritual functions um, and leadership in the life of the church. <coughs> in the end, though, it seems best to affirm that the deacons do whatever is necessary to allow the elders to accomplish their God-given calling of shepherding and teaching the church. Each local church is free to define the tasks of deacons based on its particular needs. And I, I agree with that. I think that's, that's quite, quite, quite accurate. Okay. So the authority of deacons then. Well, there's no innate authority attached to the office of deacon. Uh, that, that's different from what we said about a pastor, right? When you appoint a person to the office of pastor, you appoint them to an office with intrinsic authority. That's not the case with a deacon. 
A deacon is simply named to be a servant, and he serves at the behest of the church and his pastors. That's, that's, that's the purpose of a deacon. So there's no innate or intrinsic authority attached to the diaconate. Now, that doesn't always match reality in, in a lot of churches, right? Uh, in, in many churches, the deacon board has tremendous authority. I mean, enormous authority, uh, way more than they probably should have. And, you know, I, in saying this, I, I, I don't want to go after the deacons here because oftentimes the reason that has happened is because, uh, and elders over the years have failed to lead well. And so what ends up happening is the deacons sort of to fill in, to, uh, to, to, uh, to fill in the voids and the gaps that are in leadership. And then oftentimes, uh, it's sad to say, uh, pastors don't last very long. And so, you know, I, last church I was an interim at, the, the, the lead deacon had been through the last seven pastors. You know, the last, so, so who's holding the church together at that church? Well, if, it, if you've gone through seven pastors over the, over the career of this, this one man, well, it ends up that he probably each time one of those pastors leaves picks up a little bit of authority because he's the guy who's holding the church together. Okay. You can say, well, that shouldn't be that way. True. Uh, but the fact is that, uh, uh, we often have situations like that where a good man uh, simply sees a need and starts meeting it and ends up accruing to himself uh, more authority perhaps than he ought to have. Um, and so, uh, so there's nothing intrinsic to the authority of the office of deacon. Uh, this is something that is delegated to him uh, by a pastor and by the church. Now, a pastor can delegate significant authority to a deacon. Uh, he can, they, uh, uh, pastors can use them as an advisory council, but pastor nowhere describes deacons as possessing any sort of independent authority whereby they are part of the rulership of the church. Okay. So how is it uh, that we're supposed to select uh, deacons? Well, I think in most, in the most part, we've, we've, We've done a fairly good job in our churches of doing this. Act <coughs> six probably gives us the most complete, uh, illustration of how this is to be done. Act six. The twelve gathered all of the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose ten, seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So what, 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 what did the 12 do? Say, hey, we're, we're calling for nominations for deacons. Okay. So choose from yourselves seven men who are known to be full of the wisdom uh, of the spirit and of wisdom. And we'll turn this responsibility over to them so that we can give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose these seven individuals, presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So I think you, we, we see here an exactly exa- a good example of what's supposed to happen. The whole church is to examine their own ranks and say, hey, these are people who I think are particularly suited for serving officially in the life of the church. 
They nominate them, bring the names to, uh, the, uh, to, to the apostles who, you know, we don't know exactly why that was. Perhaps, uh, perhaps there's a vetting process that went on, but in any case, all seven of them, uh, were approved. Uh, so it, it, it pleased not only the apostles, uh, but also the whole, and they elected them as a group. So I say this passage sees the church appointing men who are never specifically called deacons uh, to assist apostles. Some don't see this as deacons, but I think it's close enough here. Um, while the scriptures offer no precise specific guidance to this end, most churches elect deacons for terms of service and not for the open-ended commitment normally seen for elders. Many also require deacons to sit out a term after they've served two or three or whatever the case may be. Usually it's spelled out in the Constitution. These steps are not mandatory, certainly, but these practices do help to prevent deacons from assuming to themselves power that is not biblically theirs. So somebody who's a deacon for... Uh, for decades, whether he wants to or not, probably is going to accumulate to himself uh, power um, uh, that is not healthy uh, for the life of the church. So it's it's often advised uh, that uh, that uh, churches uh, have term limits, as it were, uh, on on the office of deacon. I don't know if you have that there at the at community or not. The number of deacons is determined at the discretion of the church based on need and based on availability. Uh, the term always appears in the plural in the New Testament, seeming to suggest that there's always at least two, uh, although the New Testament is not precise on this issue either. Acts 6 indicates that deacons were recipients of the laying on of hands as well. Uh, most churches today don't do this. I think some do, uh, but uh, it was it was something worthy of laying on of hands in the New Testament era as well. <coughs> uh, one last question here about deacons uh, before we we wrap this up here, and that is: Does a church have to have deacons? Um, most Baptist churches suggest that it is necessary to have deacons. You know, a church should have at least one or two when it organizes, but others, borrowing from the occasion of Acts 6, suggest that perhaps a pastor could uh, uh, lead the church uh, by himself for a while until the need arises uh, for deacons to uh, to be appointed. And at that point, uh, deacons would be a part of the life of the church. Um, I'm inclined to think that what Acts does for us is to establish the way churches ought to be ordinarily organized. Uh, so it seems odd that a church would not have deacons or would not want to have deacons. Here's a couple of reasons why. In general, plurality of leadership seems to be the biblical pattern. So the idea of particularly one elder with no other elected officials in the life of the church is a recipe for power that corrupts. Um, and so it seems like a very good idea uh, for a church to have uh, deacons from day one, uh, from the from the moment of their organization. 
Okay. Um, so it seems that uh, if, in fact, there's someone available <coughs> qualified to be a deacon, it's it it's strange to me that a pastor would not want one or two or some help along the way. Uh, to, to me, that's sort of a red flag if a church doesn't want to have deacons. It's also been argued reasonably that Acts 6 is formative of church polity in general and uh, and not in all of its details. That is, the delay in adding deacons until sometime after the church begins is not intended to be a normative pattern. Rather, the pattern is, once churches are organized, you've got to have deacons so that the pastors can give themselves over to the ministry of the word. Okay? So that's deacons. Any questions on that, on that, on that topic? Just a quick question. Uh, deacons right away, uh, that kind of seems to go against the idea of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, being tested. What, what do you mean? In other words, you know, the passage that the deacons, you know, first be tested. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then if they're okay, go ahead and serve. But if you know deacons right away, right at the formation of the church, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't well, know. I haven't even thought about that really. Yeah, but well, usually at the formation of the church, we're we're. It's only in very rare instances that a church is made up entirely of brand new converts. Oh, okay. Uh, so 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 these so you can have people who are not novices, not new converts, people who've been seized, are seasoned believers, uh, at the, at the, at the beginning. In fact, most churches, when they start, are, are a nice mix of, of, of folks who have been believers for a long time and, and some, some newer folks, younger folks as well. So I don't think, think that there's a necessary problem that, that's attached to that. Okay. Last point here is messengers. Um, you know, we're talking about the officers of the church. Um, and the last item on the list is messengers. And we find throughout the scripture, there are uh, situations where churches need to appoint a temporary messenger, whether that is to deliver a gift, uh, whether to attend some sort of a council meeting, you know, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, um, um, and then also missionaries. Um, and so we find that these, these messengers of the church are, are something of, of temporary, uh, I, I don't want to call them officers. They're just temporary messengers that are appointed for a specific task. Once the specific task is carried out, they cease to be, uh, representatives of the church in any sort of formal sense. Um, tend not to do quite as much of that uh, these days. Uh, we don't have a lot of, in the independent Baptist church life, we don't have a lot of association meetings or, or denominational meetings where you would appoint people to represent the church. Uh, but we still see that happening some uh, within uh, within Baptist life. And it seems to be that there's a good precedent for that in the scripture. But these are not formal officers of the church or permanent officers of the church they're simply temporary messengers appointed by the church for a specific task. And once that task is done, uh, they're no longer uh, representatives of the church. 
Okay. I just want to introduce the idea of uh, ordinances tonight. Next week, we'll spend a lot of time talking about baptism. Following week, we'll talk about uh, the Lord's uh, table. But just just to, to give ourselves a little bit of a, a running start into next week, um, what is an ordinance? Well, Strong has a definition of an ordinance as an outward rite, which God has appointed excuse me, which Christ has appointed to be administered in his church as a visible sign of the saving truth of the gospel. I have a little bit of a hesitation with that definition. It's a, it's a definition that pops up quite a bit in Baptist life. Um, it's generally, I say, unobjectionable. Um, but if you take a look at most Baptist polity manuals, uh, the 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 qualification of an ordinance is not so much that it's a sign of the saving truth of the gospel, but rather it is an ecclesiastical, it has an ecclesiastical function. And that's something I, I want to sort of bring out uh, in, uh, in our discussion of both baptism and the Lord's table. Uh, what, so what sets the two ordinances apart from other ordained features of church life is not primarily redemption or soteriology, but rather what they do for the life of the church. And as we're going to see as we go through uh, both of these topics next the next two weeks, baptism, you know, oftentimes is reduced to that first step of obedience for a believer, right? Um, and it is that. I don't want to diminish that. Uh, it's sort of this vertical statement, I want to be with Jesus. But actually, in the Bible and in most of church history, the ordinance of baptism has been more not, I want to be with him, is I want to be with them. Okay, And so baptism has functioned throughout, uh, throughout church history as an entry right into the community of believers. So that's why it's a church ordinance. Uh, again, we're, we're going to talk about the uh, the ins and outs of what's a legitimate baptism and what's legitimate uh, 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 practice of the Lord's table. And one of the things that we're insistent on is that it has to be practiced within the assembly because they are church ordinances. Uh, the, the function of baptism is primarily to act as a entry right in the life of the church. And then uh, the Lord's table, likewise, is there to be something of a continuation right uh, for the community, which is why we sometimes call it communion, right? Because it's a celebration of the community. It's a That's why I say it's an ecclesiastical ordinance. It's not an individual ordinance. So unlike the Roman Catholic, uh, you know, who, who can, uh, who can, give uh, a mass uh, or or the Eucharist to an individual, that doesn't happen in Baptist life because communion is not just a celebration of you and Jesus. It's a celebration of all of us and Jesus. Okay? Uh, so uh, that's that seems to be the defining quality of what makes an ordinance an ordinance. Uh, is and, and it's that it, it is a 
communicator of ecclesiastical truth. It also communicates redemptive truth along the way, but I think principally uh, the purpose of these ordinances is to communicate ecclesiastical truth. So that's that's going to be our emphasis as we go through. In fact, I'm, we're going to take both of these ordinances and say, okay, here's the vertical and here's the horizontal. And same thing with uh, the Lord's table. There's the vertical. You know, I I recognize what Christ did for me. And then there's horizontal and we do it together. Okay, we we tarry for one another. We don't com- we don't celebrate communion unless we're all gathered together, which has been, of course, quite the uh, the challenge over the last year and a half with uh, with this with this this whole COVID thing. Um, so uh, so that'll be our goal over the next two weeks to talk about then these two ordinances in the life of the church: uh, first baptism, and then the Lord's table. So that's that's all I want to do as far as an introduction here tonight. I'm I'm feeling the uh, the uh, the weight of of this of this COVID, so I'm going to cut us off just a few minutes early today, unless you've got some uh, lingering questions that you want to ask. Okay, so we will look forward to seeing you next week, talking specifically about baptism. See you then.